Hey everybody, welcome to Random Musings from the Clinical Trials Guru. I really want to thank you for listening. If you feel compelled to do so, make sure you subscribe, uh, leave a review, comment, share, whatever you feel like doing. Help me out trying to grow this podcast, trying to continuously deliver value. A couple of things before we get into the show, check out the links in the show notes to my CRA Academy, my CRC Academy, both of them doing very well as far as getting people jobs in the marketplace. Check those out. Also, if you need help getting studies for your site or anything else, or even launching a site, basically any help for your site, we have a low monthly fee consulting service where we have helped many clients become and continue to be successful site owners through our background efforts of business development and support staff. Text me 949-415-6256. Please check out the links in the show notes as well for the book, The Comprehensive Guide to Clinical Research. It's been selling really well, getting very well received by the community. Thank you guys so much for that. Also check out the YouTube member page. Join this channel to get perks. That's my YouTube uh, membership. It's 10 bucks a month. You get a monthly mastermind exclusively. It's a Zoom call every month with other YouTube members. Uh, You also get weekly videos exclusive to the YouTube members on how to use social media to improve your opportunities in life sciences. So check that out. Really means a lot to me. And thank you so much again for listening and enjoy the show. All right, Guru Nation, how's it going? So we're going to do, I haven't done a live in really long time, like maybe three months. And I used, last year I did it consistently, basically every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which was insane. Uh, I just don't have the time to do that anymore, to commit to a schedule with a startup research site that I have going on. And I'm in the process of training staff and hiring new staff, but I felt like doing it because today for the first time in a long time, I'm actually working from home, which feels really nice to do. I got to be honest. I've been used to just going to the office every day um, for the last few months. So I decided, you know, let's go on on LinkedIn and put the invitation out there and see, you know, who's who's um who wants to go on with me and so ask us anything we're gonna put and by the way look i feel like it's so long since i've done this clinical research is booming it still is booming right we might be in a we might be headed towards a recession but i think in our industry um i think we're unlike 2008 and here's here's a few of my co-hosts joining and as more join, they're going to be coming uh, out. So we're live. Ask us anything. The industry's booming. Morali, how's it going? Robert, how's it going, guys? Hey, Dan. Great, Dan. Um, Great to see you. Great to be here with you, actually. Likewise. It's been, Morali, it's been like so long since we've been planning to do a podcast. I know you've been watching the videos since like you're one of the early yes yes well yeah like five years ago but you were already a pro at that time and um it's actually your videos are part 
of like required onboarding at Palmonix. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, yeah, like a lot of your videos, yeah, on different topics, yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Pulmonix, and then we'll get to Robert, who we just did a podcast with Robert, and then a few other guests are coming on too. So, yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit about Pulmonix? Oh, okay, great. Yeah, so good afternoon, everybody. Um, my, I'm Murali Ramaswamy. I'm in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I'm the CEO of uh, Pulmonix uh, LLC. Uh, so we are an integrated uh, clinical research uh, site. Uh, we're integrated in a health system called Cone Health, uh, and we focus exclusively on uh, uh, chronic lung diseases, uh, and even within that, pulmonary fibrosis. So we uh, we act as an integrated research program, uh, and uh, so by focusing on this rare disease of pulmonary fibrosis, uh, we've actually driven value to the health system and the community. Uh, these patients were going to universities uh, for their care. Uh, but now they stay in the community. Uh, it's actually allowed us also to gain national recognition, uh, the, uh, the practice and us. Uh, so, uh, so it's been a win-win situation, really. That's well, perfect. And then, uh, Robert, how's it going? Thank you so hey. much for coming back on. You know, I was telling people before you guys got on, it's my first day <laughs> working from home in like months. I just yeah, have no. like a day off where I get to work. It's not off, but I get to work from home. Yeah, you know, everyone deserves it. So thanks so much for having me, Dan. Yeah, my name is Robert Goldman. I'm an associate director of clinical operations on the sponsor side. Um, so I've been in the industry uh, over 15 years, spent many of the many, many you know, years on the CRO side um, from INC Research, PPD, PRA, ICON. Um, and now I'm on the sponsor side. So uh, bring a lot of different experience. I have a medical background, graduated in uh 2010 from St. Matthews University in the Grand Cayman and um, took an alternative path, but really glad to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, we just did a podcast too at the site. And it, by the way, I got to say, Robert, that was one of the best site initiation visits I've had. Probably the best one was where I didn't have to attend. But after that, <laughs> from the ones that I had to attend, that one was really good. So thank you so much, Robert. Glad and and Deepti, how's it going, Deepti? Hi, how are you? Nice to see you. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for, for letting me in. We got it. Why how don't you, you give like Guru Nation a little background of who you are and um, we'll, we'll get the questions coming through. There's uh, questions on all kinds of different topics that we're going to get. Sure, sure. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Deepti um, Patki and... Um, I've been in the clinical research industry for about 14 years now. Started working at a site as a research assistant right after my internship and moved into different roles at the site, working with in various therapeutic areas. And then um, about three-ish years ago, transitioned to the industry from academia. And I have worked in various roles um, within startup. And now I'm actually... Um, more into conduct and in the whole the clinical trial management aspect of it. Little more removed from direct site interaction. Um, yeah. Uh, I'm glad you're here to... because we're going to have the compare contrast academia versus private industry deep D. Um, amazing. And then Latoya, how's it going? I'm great. How are you? 
I'm good. You know, it feels great to work from home for once. Yeah. And uh, I don't have to be hunched over in my office um, and try to fit in the camera frame. I just can relax and uh, be more comfortable. So yes. thank you for joining us, Latoya. Why don't you give Guru Nation a background? Uh, well, my name's Latoya. I've been in clinical research site level for about 12 years, started out as a coordinator. So I know the difference between the, um, you know, the private sector and also the um, academia setting night and day. Um, but I am currently the um, owner of Next Innovative Clinical Research, where I am um, SMO. So I help introduce um, physicians to clinical trials, um, do all their regulatory budget negotiation, train their staff. So I do everything from startup to finish. Um, I am a one-stop shop. Um, we currently have an office in Houston, Texas, and we are working on setting something up in Chicago. Wow. Thank you for that. I love entrepreneurs um, in this space. I feel like we share a separate bond or a special bond, even though we may not know each other well. As soon as you say business owner, I'm like, all right, this is my kind of person. Yeah. So thank you, Latoya, for coming yeah. on. Nirupama, how's it going? Thank you so much. I'm doing good. How are you? How are you done? I'm doing good. You know, why don't you give us a background? Um, and uh, let Guru Nation ask the questions. Yes, so my name is Nirupama Desai, and I am um, a foreign medical graduate from India. I've been practicing uh, alternative medicine here uh, in United States for the last 20 years. And now I thought that it's a time to switch uh, myself into clinical research role. Uh, and uh, recently I took uh, the uh, CRA Academy course uh, with Dan and Chris. And yes. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a very detailed course. I loved every bit of it, and it was very detailed. And uh, we could uh, go through so many uh, topics, and you literally walked us through, you know. Uh, and now <laughs> we have enrolled for internship, and you know, waiting for our IMV reports uh, to be sent. Thank you so uh, much. For feedbacks. Thank so you so much. And we only we only paid you a little bit to be nice to us on YouTube. Yes. Thank you, Nirupama. <laughs> We'll get we'll get back to it. Also, Deepthi too. Deepthi also. Uh, Darshan, man, Darshan's like OG. Like 2010 was our first podcast, and then we just kept doing podcasts. I found this guy on Twitter in 2010. He had the handle FDA lawyer. I don't know if you still have that handle. I still Darshan. have a handle. That's cool. I just don't use it as much. Yeah, but I was like amazing because I was so afraid of the FDA. I was like. This is like a guilty pleasure, like talk to this guy. <laughs> but then I realized he doesn't really involve with the FDA too much. <laughs> He's just an entrepreneur. So Darshan, why don't you introduce yourself for those that don't know? I mean, if you don't know, you need to go back in the archives. So I, I am what Dan refers to as the OG, apparently. So that that's my go-to. <laughs> but uh, my, my name is Darshan Kulkarni. I am an attorney. I'm a pharmacist. I have a master's in quality assurance regulatory affairs. I work primarily with, um, with, with sites, CROs, and sponsors. Um, and I work in a variety of different issues. handle everything from uh, clinical trial negotiations to regulatory strategy to um, see, uh, responding to uh, warning letters, 483s, and uh, dealing with ramifications thereof. Um, I have, uh, I've had multiple clients that have been referred to me, including some people on this call as we speak, uh, which is really fun to see some of them. Uh, and I, for, for, uh, 
confidentiality purposes, I can't mention who they are, but it's, it's good to see all of you. Uh, and um, I, I also teach, I have my own podcast, as Dan mentioned, Darshan Talks, and I don't know, I just did a free plug for myself, because why not? And That's good. Uh, we love yeah. it, Darshan. Let's see, what else am I doing right now? Uh, oh, I'm trying to launch two, two pieces of software right now. That's the other piece I'm trying to do. That's and, something we've been talking for a while about. You, you, um, I'm, man, we're going to get into that. Thank you for coming on. And then Monica Paula Quitiva, the one and only CRC <laughs> Academy uh, instructor and Latinos in Clinical Research co-founder. How's it going? Awesome. <laughs> Great to be here, as usual. <laughs> and uh, it's nice to see some former students of yours on here, right? Yes. <laughs> so thank you so much for being on. And I guess maybe a place we could start. And guys, if you have questions, put them in the chat. We're going to get to them. All right. I see David here on Facebook. It's amazing people are still on Facebook. Um, cause I never, that's like the place I don't respond at all, almost at all. Yesterday I logged in, um, because I'm running an ad for a study and I logged in to see if people are messaging me for the study. And I found all these old Facebook <laughs> message. I'm if that's like the worst place to get me guys, but, um, put your questions, comments, and we have like a, a good group of experts here to hopefully we have an answer for everybody. I have a question for you, Dan. Why yeah. do you have so many Indians on your panel as we speak? Like we outnumber <laughs> Latinos, and this is Latino clinical research. When do we do Indians in clinical research? You know, there's been a few people trying to do that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We actually we actually embrace all nationalities, all cultures. So you can always. Uh, um, register or we can self-identify as latina i i can self-identify as latina i'm good with that i mean <laughs> no but but indians indians and latinos we have so much in common oh, that's yeah. why not right <laughs> have you seen fluffy's, fluffy's uh jokes do you guys know who fluffy is gabriella glacius <laughs> there you go there's a whole thing on that really? he did a whole comedy show in india man i just missed him out here Did? in yuma um all right so where do we start like what's what's hot right now in whatever you guys are working on like where do you guys see the industry headed let's start with this we seem to be headed into a recession mm -hmm. all right let's start with bad news what what's happening with our industry though i feel like maybe i'm biased but we're a little bit sheltered now because of mrnas and oncology immunotherapy and all this stuff what do you think i, I think you're going to see i mean I, I talk to vcs relatively often and my experience is that um they they currently still have money i think people are getting are, are becoming a little shy in spending our spending their money so you may see a little bit of a slowdown but i don't think it's going to be like a giant dip especially in the health tech world at least for right now, things, things, unless something dramatically changes. If you're in the technology world, speaking as someone who has way too many technology stocks, you're in the middle of a recession. But if you are in health tech, you're probably doing better than most. That would be my take, not mm. what everyone else. I don't have a question yeah. on that. That's an interesting uh, thing. You know, some like a year ago, I did some business class, and they said our industry relies heavily on like venture capital. 
particularly at the uh, CRO or even um, the biotech level, the little farmers, you know, and you know, obviously for their success, they thrive better when the interest rate is low, right? So with the interest rate going up, uh, that brings to Darshan's point, uh, how, how is biotech um, better protected than say, uh, just basic tech? tech? Um, so, yeah, I agree, and I, sorry, and I, I mean, obviously, I'm not an expert in economy or nothing like that, <laughs> but I'm, I think also that because of COVID, the industry had a lot of um, money entering, right? So uh, that's actually uh, going to save us or save the industry in many areas because now these uh, pharmaceutical companies, the big ones had a lot of uh, money in the in their pockets due to the COVID, the vaccinations, the research and everything else. And, and on top of that, um, a lot of money was given to research to keep doing more research. And this was also um, uh, affected any, many other therapeutic areas, like for example, CNS, because due to COVID, a lot of mental health conditions also were uh, an explosion. So the, the industry got a lot of money. Uh, I mean, the, the CNS area had a lot of money uh, because of that. And, uh, and let's say also cancer and many other. I mean, I'm just mentioning some. So I think that's also uh, half the industry in a robust uh, financial situation that could be uh, helping throughout this um, potential uh, recession. Yeah, so I actually want to jump in in here, Dan, if you don't mind, uh, yeah. Darshan, real quickly. So I'm coming from a small biotech perspective. Um, we I, we actually um, have a phase three study going. We have our phase two compound going, and I, I do want to say we we you know it's, it's a unique question because we just met with some financial venture capitalists and, um, firms, and the the capital markets, Darshan, as you're probably well aware right now, are quite frozen. Um, most companies and in investing firms who are looking for opportunities, they have to be so risk averse at this point. They're not willing to take any risk without a guarantee of some type of ROI. Um, so, so trying to be part of a company where we're actively fundraising always, you know, through series C at this point. Um, you know, looking at our pipeline, looking down the road, it, it is an extremely difficult sell in this market to Dan's point in talking about a recession. So from a sponsor perspective, um, you know, bringing on new money, bringing on new opportunities to develop the pipeline is very challenging right now. A lot of companies have tons and tons of cash on the sidelines, trillions of dollars on the sidelines. You know, there's companies out there that have nothing in their pipeline, but they're sitting on two, three hundred million in cash and very hesitant to even go into something that's a pro drug, for example, something that we know a lot about. And it's not risk averse until you have that phase three top line data. Companies don't want to hear about it. So just talking about capital markets in terms of biotech and our industry, um, I don't know if it's affecting the CRO side as much, but. I can tell you from a biotech perspective, it, it's certainly challenging. But Robert, let me ask you this question. You're, you you just mentioned the fact that they have this money on the sideline, and that's really the conversation that I'm having with a lot of people. 
which is they may not be able to get more money in uh, because the, the, the faucet, if you will, has been turned off. Right. But they've got stores that are ready to spend for the right investment, which is re- really where we should have been in the first place. So, I mean, otherwise we were just spending good money after bad. Um, it reminds me of the early 2000s where pets.com was being funded and there was no good reason for that. But my question is, is it fair to say that the clinical research industry has opportunities because if you can do your do what you do well, people have the money to keep you going? Absolutely. Dan, is that and, your experience? Yeah, it's my experience. I mean, I'm a small business owner, so you know, we we uh, eat what we catch. And if like if I'm not in the office, I only have three other employees. Well, four now. If I'm not in the office, you know, that's like one fourth of our staff is not there. Like I'm doing a live stream right now instead of pre-screening. So we don't rely on VC and we're not really, uh, well, we're not immune to inflation. I mean, if we ever borrow money, uh, we have to pay higher interest rates. We don't as small business. I'm curious to actually get uh, Latoya, uh, her experience on this because she's a fellow small business owner. Uh what do you th- what are you seeing? We're seeing like busy, like we're seeing yeah. tons of sites. Uh, uh, we're seeing a bunch of studies. So I'm actually hiring more staff. Like I'm not I'm not uh, letting people go. I'm hiring. I'm having a hard time finding people. Yeah. So that's what I'm experiencing. Like we because we're a minority office, a lot of the sponsors are looking for minority sites. So we've been having a lot of people, you know, seek you know seek us out, and we haven't been seeing the you know. Oh my God, it's going to be, you know, we're going through um, a recession. Everything is going to stop. Everything is going to slow down, but things are starting to pick up for us. Yeah, me too. What about Deepthi um, in academia? You know, what um, What are you seeing there? You guys are like, well, now you're in private industry, but you left yeah. from academia. You guys are like yeah. cocooned over there. You just survive off of grants. Well, yeah, but I'm not in academia anymore. I'm um, <laughs> I'm actually big big CRO, big pharma. So I'm I'm very new to the the, the startups and the small biotechs. But any sites we speak to are all very busy too. Um, they have a lot going on. Everybody's stretched for resources on the site side as well as on on this side. There's obviously a lot of jobs, so there's, we're seeing some high turnover. Uh, but everybody seems to be very busy, no matter <clears throat> how big or small the site is. Everybody um, put your questions in. We're going to get to all of you guys. It's just, it's a tactic. It's a cliffhanger. You got to wait to see when your question come. One of the things I wanted to bring up was decentral, uh, not necessarily decentralized trials, but when Darshan brought up inflation affects tech companies. But if you're in med tech, you're okay. I'm wondering, and we don't know, but... I'm wondering if sponsors are less less willing to test out new technologies now in this kind of environment. So where are we with decentralized trials? How does that affect that? Now that interest rate's going up, it's going to cost you a lot more to get those fancy DCT trials as opposed to, you know, hiring Yuma Clinical Trials, hiring Latoya's site. It's a lot more practical. You pay for what you get for with those sites, right? Minus a startup fee. What does this do to DCT? So Dan, I, I, I hate to jump in here and be a hog, but we I literally just got done before this call here today, this forum um, with Science 37. 
I'm gonna call him out. Um, Ooh, juicy. Ooh. Yep, juicy, juicy. And and I have to tell you, uh, wow. I mean, I have nothing but positive things to say about them. Uh, oh, okay. I thought it was gonna be negative. <laughs> no, it, it's actually it's not. But what I'm trying to say is, I think from a sponsor perspective, sponsors have to become amenable to to um, you know to to this whole thing they, they have to be able to adapt to this time because we have to bring trials to the patients as a sponsor as everybody here is aware our sites i'm sure you struggle with it as well meeting timelines are, are mission critical right especially when you're investor funded they don't want to hear you know your problems they don't want to know why and there's certain strategies that we have to to go with right do we extend timelines do we add sites do we add recruitment services we do we use the tech that's available DCT and what's cool about certain companies like the one I just mentioned is that they act in a virtual site capacity. So it's actually 11572. They have a footprint across the country and anybody with the use of traveling coordinators, traveling nurses and mobile technology, wearables, mobile x-ray units, um, at home lab draws, you know, at home telemedicine, it, it's that's where we're headed. I'm very confident in the next decade. That's where we're going to, we're going to go, whether or not sponsors are willing to, to, you know, bring it in and want to be part of it is another question, but also as a site owner, Dan, you know, how risk averse are you? Sites are really not amenable to change. Just as an example, on our current studies, I asked, you know, Hey, I, I did a polling of sites. How many of you would be willing to implement e-consent to save time on your screening process if it shaves an hour off the time in which the patient's in the office how willing are you to do that oh well we would need an updated cta we would have to have a budget it goes back and forth usually it's multiple days there's video calls there's questions it turns out to be longer so that was pretty rude awakening to myself because sites seem to not want to adopt the technology so it's it's a double-edged sword here yeah um Morelli, what are you seeing uh, with your company? Yeah, so decentralized trials, I, as uh, uh, Robert said, it's, it's, it's coming and it's here to stay. How uh, sites will adapt to it is going to be uh, very interesting. Uh, I think early on you could see that maybe some of the easier trials uh, where patients are easier to get, maybe going completely decentralized. But let's say you're dealing with a rare disease space or advanced cancer, uh, those would still be physician dependent. I, I really don't know. Like This is the billion-dollar question we've had at our program is what's going to be the role of the site? Like what's, What is a site uh, with DCT? Will sponsors bypass uh, and, uh, and, and then just uh, go directly to the patient? And if you have a company like Science 37, and there's another one, I think, uh, is it, uh, I forget its name now. It's it's based out of San Francisco. They had a demo at like a Magi conference uh, last month. And they're like literally being able to like, you know, they have like video visits. They have, if, you, if, you, if you're a dermatology trial, their videos can like take pictures of skin lesions and then map it with AI stuff. That's where they're heading. Uh, and... Clearly, regulations have to change, but I think they can uh, apply sufficient pressure uh, to have changes in regulations to accommodate this. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think there's still going to be a 
value and a role for sites, but who the site coordinators are going to change. There was talk at Magi about uh, people having to have computer skills, really. The coordinators having <laughs> yeah. to have a lot of computer technology skills. And we're already seeing that, like, if you take, like, a nurse who's ready to retire, like, in you look at the latest way trials are done, they struggle more than somebody coming out of college. Uh, so so this is, this is a, an inflection point, I think, in the clinical trial industry, uh, especially for sites. And, uh, but I, I just don't have the answer. And that's something that, you know, if you guys help me out, I, it'll help us as well. Uh, but it is an inflection point. How, how is the modern site going to look at? How, how can a traditional site, like, fit in uh, into this? Is it just products that the sponsor gives that we have to use? Or we'll just get bypassed to you know other virtual companies that become the new sites. So Mirali, uh, like in in my opinion, not to interrupt you, Dan, is yeah, yeah. It, it's 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 for the next ten years, it's going to be a hybrid. It's not going to be an all or nothing, right? And I think it really comes down to why are we all here? We're doing it for the patients, or at least I hope we're all doing it for the patients, right? Um, so it, it's really giving them the option. If there's a if there's a person who is not near a clinical site, do we want to preclude them from participating in advanced medicine? Absolutely not. Right. But however, if I'm a part, you know, if I'm somebody in a metro area and I have three clinical sites around me that are offering studies, I may prefer to still go on that hands-on experience. So I think it's a hybrid situation that we're going to see and whatever suits the patient best, whether that means brick and mortar or a virtual site or uh, some combination of both coming to the clinic for the screening baseline visit, but then all the other visits are as much virtual as possible to reduce the burden of travel, time dedication and everything. But I think the answer to your question is a hybrid model in the foreseeable future. Hybrid for sure. I I would add to that though. I think that everyone's thinking from a physician centric model. And I think that model starting to change because um, CVS, has entered. Did someone say good? Was that Morale? But um, so so I, I think the, the issue is the CVS enters this model. The question is we, we all talk about this hybrid model with remote access and using technology and all that good stuff. But everyone has a neighborhood pharmacy. That's where you get your meds. So the question becomes how does the traditional site survive in a model where Maybe the physician is the one that's remote, but everything else happens more live. And you start, uh, and there, there are going to be, and I'm, I've spoken to a few different uh, companies on uh, DCTs. I keep getting different versions, different styles. Some are talking about um, fully remote, but what does fully remote seem to differ from sponsor to sponsor, CRO to CRO? What, I'm, what I really think is going to be um, DCTs are going to be this generation's uh, centralized monitoring, which means everyone says they do it. Everyone's going to charge the sponsor a bunch of money to say they do it. And the truth is, it's an add-on. Everyone's still doing all, everything they always did, and they just add on the additional components. So that would be my my perspective. So I think hybrid is a goal. I don't think it's going to be as dramatic as people are thinking. I agree. And another point I want to make is, of course, we're thinking, you know, what the sites, what their role is going to be. But I think an important piece in this whole decentralized 
trial design, not one size fits all, it's not one common answer, but the other important piece is our patients and how, what their role is going to be. So I, I personally think patient advocacy groups need to be more involved when talking about these kind of uh, trial designs to, to get the patient's perspective to be able to handle technology if the site's role is going to be modified from the traditional model. Yeah, I saw that. I saw the Walgreens and the CVS. Have my my response to that is: Have you ever stood in line at Costco to get your meds or CVS? <laughs> Imagine how long that line's going to be if you have to do consent and you get uh, questions. And it may not be as long to... as it may not be as long as the line. The one hour wait to talk to your doctor. Yeah, that's longer. That's longer. <laughs> but if a coordinator is there, let me tell you, and we're going to get to the questions right now. We're going to jump around different topics. Okay, because we're going to get to all these questions. Everybody like, subscribe, comment, share. Please helps with the algorithm. I haven't coordinated. I haven't got my hands dirty for like eight years. Okay, now I'm doing it again. And it's not on your study, Robert, that I'm going to complain about. But <laughs> we have this one study where there's tons of diaries for the patients. Okay, that's fine. That's like normal now. Electronic diaries. That's normal now, too. For some reason, this sponsor says we don't want, when you set up the ePro for the patient, we don't want their email address. We don't want that liability. We don't want their phone number. So you coordinator, which is me, put your phone number in there, all right, and put your email address in there. And then I said, well, how are we going to remind the patient this every day about their diary? So if I have 20 patients in the study... I'm getting 20 different texts, 20 different emails every day to remind these patients that work looks like that responsibility because of technology is supposed to make things easier. By the way, even if the patient gets those emails and texts, the coordinator is still the one that has to call them to remind them. Anyways, but that's like my real life experience with one element of DCT. I can't imagine an actual vendor. I mean, maybe they would just need to employ full-time staff to, to help patients with their surveys, ePros. So you would have you couldn't you couldn't do that as easy as you think, Dan, because from a HIPAA perspective, who employs that person? If it's the pharma See? company, um, it's it's problematic. This goes back to the same comment I made a, a little bit ago, right? From, You're gonna um, have a field day as an attorney with this DCT stuff. I already have a field day as an attorney with <laughs> DCT stuff, but. Uh, but the, the point I'm making, though, is um, from that DCT perspective, if, if you land up with a scenario where you're reminding pe people to do what they were already supposed to do, how how do you manage that becomes a huge cost center? That becomes that additive piece I was just discussing a few seconds ago, where people are saying, oh, we'll move to DCT. The truth is, if you move to DCT at the pace you want to move, you're going to land up in a scenario where there are a bunch of legal questions that haven't been answered, people are going to put themselves into trouble in, in ways they haven't considered before. Uh, yesterday's news is that the federal government is considering a privacy law. So if that comes into place, how does that play out? Everyone's talking about DCT. If you start doing true DCT, you now have to have state-specific uh, analysis. So how California handles it is different from how Virginia handles it and how that gets handled in, say, Minnesota. So how does all that come together will have a major impact on privacy, on uh, clinical research, and more. 
Okay, let's get through some of these questions. Uh, whoever feels like answering or multiple people answer. Matt says, realistic data manager salary range for a CRA3 wanting to give up the travel life. Anybody? Realistic. Be, let's be realistic, guys. <laughs> are we adding inflation? Yeah, uh, I wouldn't know the CRA space on this. Uh, plus, we're in the Northeast. Uh, but generally speaking, I find salary.com and, you know, looking at like Indeed job posts, uh, you can get a range, right? Yeah, glass, um, glass door also would recommend. Glass door, yeah. Mm -hmm. Anyone else know? Numbers? No. Glass door. An hour or two days ago, because it seems to change every single day nowadays. <laughs> yeah. And this CRA three, I mean, I want to know the difference between a CRA one, exactly. two, and three. Somebody explain <laughs> this to me. Robert, do you know the difference? Yeah, I, I do. So th this is so, most CROs, you know, they, it, this is just a CRA three is synonymous to a senior CRA, I would oh. imagine. Um, and then most CROs are now adding another layer called a principal CRA. PPD had that, you know, eight, nine years ago. And now I just heard from a colleague of mine who's still on the CRO side that, that icon actually just added the principal um, CRA role as well. So th that's just indicating their, their level in which they're wow. starting out at. Yeah. Not to be confused with principal investigator. This industry exactly. is just getting more confusing <laughs> by the day. Okay. Clinical research career in developing countries. Let's go. Who wants that? This is, this is actually, I think, huge growth area. What do you guys think? But, but uh, just by the way, it's, Rick's actually answered the question for the CRA salary. You might want to put that up. Oh, shoot. Hold on. Okay, here's Re oh, Rex. How's it going, man? CRA 2MD should be at 120K, so my expectation is higher than that. Rex, tomorrow you're going to get all these CRAs going to complain to their line managers <laughs> why they're not making that. Good job, Rex. I just, Dan, <laughs> I just found on, uh, on uh, recruiter.com. The, the data management, <laughs> you're going to laugh. You guys are going to laugh about this. The average wage ranging between 52000 up to 165 Yeah. So it's... That seems right. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty accurate. Yeah. It's like asking uh, average site owner, hey, hey, Dan, how much you make as a site owner? Well, negative a lot to <laughs> multiple <laughs> millions. So where are you on that it's spectrum? That's why I wasn't <laughs> <laughs> All right, developing countries. Anybody got something so I, good? I think that will be amazing uh, that the, uh, the, the the pharmaceutical companies, the sponsor, take a look of the developing countries because that's also the answer to diversity. Uh, and I think they had a, they have a lot to offer, and many of these countries have the same, uh, if if not very similar, regulations as USA. So. I, I, I will be somebody that support this very much. <laughs> so I'm reading this. I'm reading this question. Sorry, Dr. I, I'm reading this question a little bit differently. And I'm wondering if, if the person Muhammad, who's asking, are, are you asking about yourself having a career because you live in a developing country? I, I think it's, it should be clear to our audience that, you know, there, there, there should be, there's no boundary or limitation or hurdle just because of where you live, or at least there shouldn't be. That's true. Due to the, right, due to the availability of remote work. Um, I mean, you know, your many CROs, many vendors outsource to X USA 
outside the USA to developing countries. So, you know, if you have the skill set and you have the drive, I encourage you to to apply everywhere and anywhere, regardless of where you live. That's a great point of view. Uh, and we actually have from uh, the academies, from the CRC Academy on, on the other classes, we have students from all over the world and many of them working remotely. Yeah, we'll see how that plays out going forward. Um, okay, next one. Sorry, uh, Darshan and Monica, there's no other way to do this. Greetings, everyone. I'm currently an associate clinical project manager and bio repository company based in Germany. I've been trying to get a position as a CRA. No luck. Any tips? I know there's some people on here that have advice for Nadi. My number one tip is to network. Network, network, network. That's the best thing that, that you can do. Um, and just associate yourself with people within the industry that you know, either is a hiring manager or that has the role that you want and um, do like internships and um, just find a mentor. I would say latch on to one person who doesn't mind being a mentor. Who's a mentor? Latoya, you're a mentor? Not for CRA. <laughs> <laughs> Not for so like, I'm just to, kidding. Uh, That's an like intro. Go ahead. Also recommend perhaps like networking inside like blogs such as ACRP and, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. the, um, I will um, say LinkedIn, I will say LinkedIn, Link. Latinos in Clinical Research, or register to one of our classes, the CRA Academy, the CRC Academy. You, you will get a solid foundation of the education that you need for that. Or just message Darshan. And him. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, have, uh, I have a thing to add here, Dan. So that's a interesting going question. Back to, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say about that question for that, for that, per, you know, for the person who's having a challenge. Um, and I hate to be devil's advocate and always look at it from a different angle, but, you know, coming from an associate clinical project manager, is that, is that what it was, Dan? An associate yeah, project manager? Yeah, associate yeah. clinical so, project manager. You know, that's a, that's a very unique trajectory to go to a CRA. Um, typically it's, you're in the CRA role, then you move to the role that you're currently in. Um, so, so Nadia, I, I would, you know, obviously what the panel said here is absolutely correct, but, um, you know, running a project and not understanding what the site level does and what the CRA does and how to manage a clinical team, um, kind of puts you at a disadvantage and perhaps companies are looking at you saying, why would an associate clinical project manager want to go to a CRA role from a management role? It kind of seemed, I don't want to say it's a step down, but it's, it's an unusual trajectory and that might be where your bottleneck is. So, you know, getting that internship and getting that exposure to that role, if that's really where you want to be, um, that might be the, the direction, but, you know, kind of think about that um, as a reason for your bottleneck. That's exactly why I was mentioning the class because it will give them a better perspective of that specific role. Exactly. Yeah, you bring up a good point. The, the clinical project manager role, may the description may look different for a biorepository company compared to a clinical trial company. Um, and the other thing I wanted to mention is aspiring, What what is the podcast? Aspiring CRA. I forget the name of the person that has the, the podcast. Um, Go follow her on LinkedIn. It's called Aspiring, the Aspiring CRA. Wow. She has some so great she's... tips on, on 
how to you know step into the CRA world if that's what you want to do. That's really good, actually. Um, I think the biorepository thing is very niche. So that's why I like being a generalist. You, you can have some safety, some job security yeah. if you can. It's not easy to be a generalist, and nobody's going to hire you because you are a generalist. That's the problem. So you have to want to do it. No employer is going to hire and say, hey, you're a great generalist. <laughs> Love to have you. No, they want specialists. But it's your job, your career is your business to make yourself a generalist. Um, Tunisia. So to, oh. sorry, yeah. Yeah, sorry, uh, Morella, go ahead. Oh, it's okay. I want to build on uh, Robert's answer to Mohammed's question. Uh, so, our, given all the job market being tight, what kind of jobs that a site can say outsource uh, for remote work inside the United States and outside? Uh, for example, like can you get somebody abroad to get into your medical records and do pre-screening? Um, you know, or data entry. Regulatory. Regulatory. Data entry. Regulatory. Yeah. Data entry. When, yeah. I, when I started my site in 05, you know, I read the book for our work week. I had no idea what I was doing. I read the book for our work week. The guy outsourced everything. I never had the courage to do this. But I was like, why don't I hire somebody, you know, from another country to enter my data? I never did it, but... Now with eSource, it's much more um, likely that that would actually turn out okay for the site. Uh, but then you got people like Darshan who tell you different things regarding laws and get sued. <laughs> so then we just end up hiring people locally. <laughs> yeah, so, that, yeah, so I want to hear that. I want to hear. I want to hear what how different sites are doing it and what Darshan's perspective is with terms of legal compliance. Darshan, what do you think about regulatory? Somebody doing it remotely. <laughs> or data entry. I, I think you need to start dealing with the question of how will you handle that from a HIPAA perspective. You also need to consider the fact that when you start moving, it depends on where the patients are. So if you're talking about just um, a local site sending the data out, um, are there any um, local or, or state laws that, that come into play? You then need to deal with just control of data you then need to get into the question of, okay, um, is the, and I, I got involved in this situation recently, um, does that, does the location you're outsourcing to now become a site? Do you need to list it under 1572 now? Um, what what are the implications mm -hmm. of that? What kind of training do you have for these people? You're, you're now finding someone else sitting in another country who's doing research for you or doing some component of that research and you're sending some very private data across. But what controls do you have to make sure this person's actually qualified? Is, is, is it just they, they sent you a bit of information or do you go there, meet them and do something more with that? So that would just be off the top of my head, things that start considering uh, what contract you have in place. So, yeah. So you're telling me no. How about if they are trained, like, for example, let's say one of our trainees from the CRC Academy that has been trained by us with our program with United States uh, regulations and all of that, and then using one of them to be hired uh, remotely. Great. From so, now how, so now how do you, so first of all, just to be clear, not giving legal advice. I just want to put that out there. Oh yeah. Or medical. Yeah. You're a pharmacist too. <laughs> Our clinical advice, yes. Uh, have, having said that, um, I, what, what you'd end up doing is, so this person sitting outside the country, how do you enforce if they decide to take your data and sell it while they're sitting 
in Argentina, in India, or in Mexico. It doesn't matter. Question is, how do you enforce that? How do you ensure that they don't, they have control? So that your, your agreements start becoming really, really important at that point. Then you start getting the question of, what do those countries look at that data as? So some countries have privacy laws, other countries don't. Contract laws may be different. How are you going to enforce those? Uh, so I'm not saying it's not possible. I'm saying consider these questions as you start making contracts. I mean, it's no different than having a contract for someone sitting in, I don't know, uh, Arizona while I sit in Pennsylvania. The rules don't change that much. It's how do you enforce them and how do you make sure that this is consistent throughout. So something to consider. Easier Great enforceable points. in the U.S. Uh, than yeah, overseas. So, yeah, we're actually looking at uh, somebody who's in Texas, a, a young mom uh, who can't leave the five-year-old, uh, but who'll be really good with uh, pre-screening. We'll have to get into Epic Medical Records. And the first thing is she had to sign um, like a basic draft saying how she's going to work. And what, and then the hospital, I think HR department is going to look to see whether from North Carolina and she's sitting in Texas, whether there's state laws that prevent her from doing that job. Uh, and they said they need a few weeks to give us that answer. Well, you may ask Morelli, you may want to consider having a BAA sign. Uh, a business right. mm -hmm. yeah. So um, the question is, she's sitting in Texas, so it's not the worst thing in the world. What if she was sitting in California? Adds all, all new levels of complexity that you probably need to look into. So, yeah. So, Darshan, I'm, I'm going to go from another angle and ask you a question. Um, so, you know, it's no different than being on a CRO side and being on a, on a global project team, right? You have your clinical core team, project manager, clinical lead. CRAs in the US, but data management, for example, is outsourced for, for budgetary reasons, right? Mm -hmm. um, safety pharmacovigilance is outsourced to third world countries for budgetary reasons. So how does a CRO manage it from a legal, I know this is not legal advice and I'm not asking you to give it, um, right. but, but just from your, your own personal perspective, how, how would it be any different how a CRO manages it versus how a site would manage it? Very simple. From a CRO's perspective, they actually, number one, you have the contracts in place. They tend to be a little bit tighter. You you then have oversight for aspects that you probably will be able to do as a CRO that you may not be able to do as a uh, small site. Now, if you were, I'm making this up, a large, uh, one of the largest uh, clinical trial sites in the country, I happen to know them, work with them uh, in pediatrics. They do do some outsourcing work. And in that scenario, they do have outsourced stuff, but they have controls in place to match that. So that might require audits, that might require SOPs, that might require the appropriate contracting, that might require you flying there, meeting the people before you even hire them. You need to look at FCPA issues, so Foreign Corrupt Practices Act issues, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it, it's done all the time. I mean, the world's flat. Uh, you're doing international transactions all the time. But you just need to keep these issues in mind when you do it. That's all. Gotcha. Yeah, Darshan. <laughs> the, I mean, in 2005, when I was thinking of outsourcing my data entry, I didn't have the answer you just had, but I knew there was someone like you out there ready to get me. So I'm like, no, no, let's just hire somebody <laughs> from Anaheim. Let's hire someone from Anaheim. Baby. <laughs> okay. New, this one's quick, right? As a newbie in research, what advice would you give for someone with degrees in human services and OSHA to get in on the ground floor? And he also says, no, Monica, don't sell me the academy because I've completed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that piggybacks 
from your last social media post, though, where it's not about the degree. It's about the experience. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah, it's get in, get in on the ground level. Find a site near you, all right? Small site, not big academic medical center. So unless you get lucky there, small site, help that site get studies, get patients, pass out flyers, buy dry ice, buy snacks for the patient, respond to or remind patients about patient-reported outcome, not legal advice. If you get in trouble, contact our Sean. Um, sites, need, <laughs> sites need your help. That's the short answer. This is a good yeah. one, okay? Or right, go ahead, Deepti, go answer no, this guy, uh, Malik the first. Transferable skills piece, like doesn't matter really what degree you have. Just think from the the point of view of transferable skills for whatever role you're applying. You did really good at that too. Walk walk us through a little bit how you did. So um, when I was transitioning from academia to industry, uh, you know, I had I had ten, eleven years of. Uh, site experience but zero industry experience and all roles were uh, always said like at least two years of industry experience um, which I didn't have but I had all this you know project management experience um, in various roles uh, at the site and uh, I was always told that the CRA route is the only way to transition from academia to industry but that's not really the case and so I uh, really worked on, so I, I targeted the startup role and um, wrote to the hiring manager and explained like what I've got, um, how I've worked in startup on the side side. So I have a little bit of that experience, um, you know, and then some of the common, um, you know, uh, skills required that were on my resume and were in the job description, just kind of matching that up for them to, to show that I can, I can handle it with uh, 11 years of site experience just give me a chance i think i think to to continue what uh, deputy was saying the cv is very important obviously because even if you have a lot of experience you have a really great background but a really bad cv <laughs> that's it so you need to work really hard on that uh, on the cv to make sure you're showing what they are looking for we're, we're going to get through these comments. By the way, if any of the hosts need to leave, I totally get it. Like, we're going to go through some of these questions to try to get through all of them. But I totally get it. But thank you for staying. Okay, this is a really good one. I think a lot of people can provide some kind of feedback from Ashok. Uh, how different CRA role in medical device versus pharma? I mean, I'm starting to think maybe Robert would be one of the best people to give advice on this. So would you hire like for your trial without getting into details, would you hire someone with only medical device experience or? So I'll be very honest with you. The answer is no. And and, there, and I'll tell you why. Okay. <laughs> Simple um, enough. Yeah. So there's, you know, like Dan said, right. Being a generalist is, is the best way to go. So where do you start coming from the medical device, you know, arena is very different than working on a compound or a product. And I'll give you a perfect example, a pain trial. Okay. A pain trial is a complete different animal on its own due to the subjective data of the patient reported outcomes that you're dealing with and monitoring in a CRA role. It's very different understanding the dynamic of monitoring subjective data 
versus something like a dermatology trial where it's either resolved or it's not resolved. Even cancer, for that matter, right? Using the use, using the um, the the grading scale there. So looking at objective and subjective data from a monitoring perspective is very difficult, and it takes practice. Looking at trends, you know, these things take a little bit of work. So I'm not saying it can't be done, but simply having only medical device background. You need to break in and talk to whether you work at a CRO, talk to your line manager and tell them that you want to be exposed to the other side. And when I say the other side, I mean, you know, compound drug development because the regulations are different. Um, as a matter of fact, I'm going through a problem right now internally where we're working with, um, you know, the EMA and the EMA requires something called a CE marking on a device that is attached, unattached to a spray head. And because our spray head does not have the CE marking, it, you know, we can proceed with, um, you know, the, the clinical trial. But then when you look at commercialization and actually marketing your product to the EMA, you have to have this CE mark. And the CE mark is hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get. And I see Darshan shaking his head and it's like, these are things that you just don't consider about. So as a medical device CRA, I'm sure you're aware of the CE marking, whereas you know, I was a CRA for 10 years um, as a generalist, you know, a lot of time in analgesia, hepatology, cardiovascular, CNS space, working with controlled, uncontrolled substances, but I would have never known about a CE marking. So that's what I mean. You know, the objective data review versus subjective data review. And how do you ensure that you're monitoring the, the sponsor's endpoints from a subjective, you know, perspective? It's pretty challenging. So that's why I said no, Dan, it's not not with impunity, but just, <laughs> just uh, kind of rationale behind it. Very good answer. Actually, anyone else? Darshan's loving it because it's more regulations. Um, okay, let's move on to some. Other. Okay, here's one. I have a full time contract job. It, uh, I have a full time contract job in clinical research. If I want to do consulting on the side, where do I find such roles? Something like CRA, non-travel, CTM, or data entry that I can do on the side. I appreciate the ambition. Anyone have answers for Shreya? I have one comment before everyone jumps in, which is if you do have that situation, make sure that your employment agreement allows you to do that because you may not be allowed in some cases. I know. Some of these employment agreements. By the way, Darshan, maybe we talk really quick about this. There's a company out there, a CRO. Um, I'm not going to even say what letter they start with, but they scare. I don't know how else to put this. They scare the hell out of their employees because I've had like dozens of their employees tell me, hey, I'm, I need to leave, but I'm afraid. Like, look, look what they made me sign. Like, I can't work anywhere else. That's a computer of uh, a CRO or a site, like the way their attorneys write this, you know, their version of Darshan, it's almost like they need you to help them get, get yeah. this. So what do you think about this scare tactic? Like should like, or, or what? So a couple of different things. So number one, uh, there are what are called uh, agreements of adhesion, which basically means take it or leave it. Um, adhesion agreements are really difficult to enforce because in the end, an agreement is supposed to be two parties coming together and agreeing to something. If you're in a scenario where one party has no choice, well, then it's not really, it's really hard to enforce that. Uh, on top of that, you actually also have to deal with the situation that a lot of states, uh, California being one, uh, New York being another, 
have been looking at non-competes in a very, very unfavorable light. And, uh, light. and the reason for that has been, I think there was a situation where a sandwich maker was being prevented from changing jobs because they work in like a subway or something. And the courts were like, this is ridiculous. You need to have something that is truly confidential for us to hold you to a non-compete. So the question really starts becoming, are you really being prevented? And is that enforceable? There's a lot of language I throw in personally, even on some of my contracts where I know enforcement-wise, this will never work, but you're doing it purely for the scare tactic value of it. Ah, you um, see, guys? You see? You hear from but, them? That's basically what I tell them to you. But sometimes it does fly. And what happens in those scenarios? Now you're in a situation where you have to worry about it. So what may... What I always recommend, I, I used to teach at the University of the Sciences. It got bought out literally this week by St. Joe's. But um, I used to have my students actually negotiate their employment agreement. And what, what they would inevitably do is go, I can't believe I agree to some of these things. And that's what I wanted people to see. Make sure you read your agreement. Don't just sign, the, sign your agreement as a piece of paper that you have to do so that you can get to the job. That agreement is something you're bound to. How can companies do, like, for example, a big pharma that they are hiring people uh, remotely, right? How can they prevent that these people get not just one job, but several jobs remotely? How can they prevent it? They, they may not need to prevent it. They just need to enforce it. So they might say either I'm firing you. Number two, your intellectual property that you develop for someone else while working for us. Well, now belongs to us because you already signed that agreement. Now you're in violation of a bunch of other agreements. Do you really want to get in the middle of all of that? That mm -hmm. might be how they enforce it. So the enforcement is more, we can come after you for bad faith and blah, blah, blah. Most people just don't want to deal with the law. Um, and that's the worst part of it. Yeah, who wants to deal with a lawsuit when you're a full-time contract CRA? <laughs> yeah. All right, yeah. last thing you want to deal so, with is this. Yeah, so the other part of her question is where does she find such jobs? Yes. Uh, I can tell you from our perspective, you know, I'm looking for like different contract positions and I'm not even advertised for those. Right. I'm just using my personal networks. Uh, like, you know, I run into somebody and like, they know somebody in town who can do something and you're kind of scrambling. So in a way, like uh, maybe uh, I'm sure a lot of sites are like that. So um, maybe we should do a better job, like maybe advertising for some things like that. Uh, so that also means for Shreya would be that, she would need to network uh, or she would need to uh, uh, push uh, the fact that she's looking uh, for a contract job. Uh, I don't know if it's LinkedIn or Indeed uh, or, or using different like professional networks um, about what she might want to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would also like to add um, Clora.com. I don't know where she is located, but Clora.com. Clora, C-L-O-R-A.com matches uh, like on demand expertise with uh, oh, okay, cool. so you great. can as thank a, you for that no problem so you as a as a potential um future job seeker you can go and create your profile and add your interests and it's like a matching system and then you'll get based on uh, how you've set up your notifications you'll get get them every so often okay like, hey, based on the interests you've listed in your CV, here's some roles, would you be interested in talking? And they're like short-term projects. Of course, assuming it's everything okay from the legal perspective that Darshan has 
a limit. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds loving. <laughs> so that's the website, Clara.com. Um, is, I guess, before, as we move on from that question, is there such a thing as a part-time job in research? I mean, I know it sounds like silly to ask. Of course there are, but they all, from my experiences, turn into long-term full-time. You know, yeah, the industry is so busy. Yeah, it has to be all laid out in your contract on where you're going to draw the line and you're going to have to really learn to draw the line and not be a super type A plus personality. To, yeah, unless you start outsourcing going. to someone else, you know, that's a whole nother issue um, for Sierra. I know CRAs do it too. They just don't talk about it, but they outsource all the time. At least their trip reports or things like that. Um, I don't know if you knew that, Robert, but they do that. That's how they roll. Oh, I know it. <laughs> Okay, there you go. All right, Penn. Uh, okay, so Shreya, uh, so Penny's giving Shreya some advice. You need to have a consulting firm working for you and be specific with it, what you're seeking. Yeah, I think it's similar advice. Um, for a CRA with about seven years on the CRO side, but switching to work with a small sponsor. Okay, this sounds like Robert. What <laughs> cultural shock is expected? What would be the major difference for such CRA to expect? So this is a great question and I'll, I'll try and answer it as quickly as possible. Um, the, the biggest thing that, that, I mean, the largest shock, it's not so much a cultural shock, but you're going to, there, there's not as much structure. There's not as much direction. Your SOP library is a 10th of a percent of what it would be on the CRO side. So you have to wear multiple hats. You're not going to be siloed from management. And when I say management, executive level management, um, when I'm talking about a small biotech, right? So I don't know what your definition of small is, but whether it's, you know, 10 people or 50 people, um, it, it's going to be the same thing. So being able to pivot, wear multiple hats, work very closely, accountability, um, and, and work outside the structural guidelines. You're not going to have a checklist. You know, you're not going to have a work description. You're going to have a job description, but you know, in a CRO, everything's outlined for you. You don't really have to think a whole lot. I'm going to be very honest. Um, for those of you watching it, you know, in, in, it, that's just my opinion, right? I, I spent over a decade um, on the CRO side at some of the larger CROs. And as they evolve, um, and you see the different talent that joins the organizations, um, you know, the ability to think abstractly outside the box is, is not as common as it used to be. So from a, from a shock perspective, that's where the shock comes in. You know, it's, it's not as structured and the best thing that I'll say, and I'll end it here, no timesheets. You don't have to do timesheets. And that I just think is the coolest thing in the world. Robert, I think now that you mentioned that, I think there is no better way to become a generalist than, than doing so, than doing that, transferring from a big one to a small one, because in Very the small true. one, you're going to wear all the hats and you're going to be able to be like Dan says, always a multi-specialist. So, uh, I mean, I think that that brings a great... Um, I mean, it enhance a lot your career because then later on you can go in many other different directions. Yeah. I mean, Monica, I'll say this. I thought I knew a lot about clinical trials. I mean, I was a project manager, a clinical trial manager, clinical team manager, 
a senior CRA. I was a mentor. I was a, you know, I did routine performance visits. I did, you know, you name it, I did it. Right. And then I came to the sponsor side and I thought I knew finance guys. I, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I was humbled very quickly. Okay. I, I kind of got knocked down a few notches and realized, wow, I have a lot to learn and grateful for the experience on both sides. Um, like I mentioned in the original podcast that I, that I did with Dan a couple months ago, but you know, having this also experience, I think you're hundred percent right, Monica, you, you've got to start over there so that you can come over to the, to the small side and then understand the dynamics of what everybody's going through at each level. Yeah, and I think the same thing happens for the CRCs when they go from a big organization being like doing a specific task, going down to a small site where you have to wear all the hats. I mean, I think even the best way to start is on those small sites because now you're going to have a really solid foundation for your career because you're wearing every single hat possible and 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 not just that, but you also become more creative and critical thinker and everything because you have to solve things your own way or I mean obviously following the guidelines and everything but uh I think that's the best way to go um and to make your career even more rich but it's not for everyone though all right because some i I run all I've been running my whole career small sites. And not everyone fits in. Like there are some people who literally get panic attack if they're given like any freedom to make their own choice. So it's not the right fit for everybody. But I do think what you said is correct. Like it's the fastest way to protect your career going forward, working at small sites. Uh, and also contribute to like the actual, the writing of the SOPs that don't exist and be really yeah. part of the trend setting. Exactly. All right, here's one. This one. Let's go through these quick. As a CRC, which transferable skills relate to pharmacovigilance? Aggregate report writing across all formats. Scientific literature screening, signal detection analysis. Jeez. Right. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> all of them. I don't know. How would you do the CV? Right. Anybody have advice? So, I mean, from pharmacovigilance, um, I actually just got done doing our D our annual DSUR. Um, we just had our DIBD for our phase three compound. For those of you who are watching who may not know what the DIBD is, that is the date of international birth date of the discovery of a compound. So each year, oh, wow. um, each year we are required to submit a DSUR, drug safety update report, um, which is an aggregate of your global exposure to a compound, right? So from a pharmacovigilance safety perspective, um, I, I wish we, we could talk to, to this person who's asked this question because um, I'd like to know more about your role in pharmacovigilance because, you know, it's, it's very spread out, right? Are you the one tracking the med watch? Are you doing the narratives? Um, and are you following up with queries to the sites all the way through finalization, adding these cases to your safety database? If so, um, it's very relatable to all of the reports that um, you know sponsors, CROs are typically responsible for. 
sometimes these reports will be outsourced uh, to the CRO or the sponsor does them themselves. Um, I can tell you that there, there is, there's a lot of transferable skills, right? There's a lot of efficiencies in understanding exposure data because when you're looking at tables, listings, and figures, also known as TLFs, and you're adding those from the prior year, you know, what goes in your DSUR, for example, all adverse events, all SAEs, especially ones that are related to drug. So, so the, you know, having that background in pharmacovigilance will help tremendously in the composition of a DSUR, for example, especially with signal detection too, right? Nobody can see a trend um, in safety signals. Let's call it cardiac safety signals um, better than somebody in PVG. Well, there you go, Cashel. Um, we want to hear from you what's happening, how, how you manage to do that, get you on the podcast. What advice to newcomers? Look, network, put yourself in a position where you can grow quickly. I think small sites um, uh, just started with decentralized and brick and mortar. Hey, hey, Denise, how's it going? What are your takes on eSource? I love it. Um, if you're not limited by your current contract, okay, let's go through some of these. Lighthouse is the name. What's up, Amy Fox? How's it going? I worked on a study with them. They would have, oh, that was um, Sciences 37. Okay, I'm a clinical research analyst. I work in busy oncology clinic within a hospital. I love the job, but I find it very stressful. Can you offer any advice as someone who is new to the industry? Are there certain areas to work in research that would have a better work-life balance? Wow. Uh, anyone want to take a shot at this one? Work-life balance, that came up. That's a loaded question. <laughs> it is. I was going to say the same thing. You, you are responsible for that. You know, you have to take ownership. No, no organization, whether it's Dan, um, an academic, a site, a small site, bio, nobody's going to offer. I mean, they're going to tell you, oh, the work-life here is phenomenal. That's a, that's a catchphrase selling point. But I think you are responsible for creating those boundaries that creates, in turn, work-life balance. Hmm. Does yeah. everybody have different stress, uh, right. you know, level to manage uh, that they know how to manage? So it's kind of difficult. Yeah, and I would like to add, like, really think about the different roles and <clears throat> what what the job description is. So, for example, some something like a CRA gives me like for, it's not a good fit for me. I've known this and. Mm -hmm trying to be more alert to what you can handle in terms of, you know, clinical research tasks. I don't know if this is your first job or um, one of, you know, you've, uh, you've already been in the industry. I, I'm sorry, I didn't catch that on the question, but just kind of be mindful of that. Like, what are your triggers essentially for stress? Because any job can be as stressful as you can make it. You can be completely wrapped up in this, in this industry. Um, and if you keep going, nobody's going to say you're doing too much. Like, oh, take a exactly. break. <laughs> so, so one of the common things would be that for, um, to look at your team, uh, to see all the in work culture of the work environment. Many times that could be the problem. Uh, and so if that's a problem, uh, that you're not happy with your coworkers or, you know, then you got to just move to a different company. Uh, otherwise, you will increase the risk of burnout. Uh, so, th so that that might 
you might be feeling work-life balance, but it could be a culture issue at work. Mm-hmm. I'm just throwing that in there. Yeah, I saw a funny TikTok yesterday of a girl from another industry giving advice on how to set boundaries for herself when the employer is asking her to stay extra. And I was laughing because I was like, at a CRO, this person's not going to last long or they'll never advance if that's their answers they give. So it's a per like Robert and everyone else said, it's a personal decision. Like you can move around. There are other companies. All right. Here's Rod Raphael, site owner. It's more of a rant. But he's saying, like, how does DCT help recruitment? How does this get more people involved? I feel you, Rod. Thank you, Monica. Um, but I'm a site owner. I'm biased. Latoya as well, site owner, biased, Morali. Yeah. But then people like Robert say, well, not so fast, guys, all right? These DCT, just because they're a threat to you doesn't mean they're bad. I don't think they're a threat to you at all. I think that... It's it, Well, it depends on what you look at as a threat, right? Because if you're looking at competitive enrollment and it's possibly taking a piece of the pie away from you guys as site owners because they may enroll faster, then it is a threat. But it's not a threat to the program to meet timelines. So if I come to you as a sponsor and say, hey, Dan, we have an eight-month enrollment period and you're signing on and you give me a feasibility assessment and say, well, in eight months, I'm going to randomize you know, 20 patients – and you commit to that, then, you know, there's no threat to you, right? But if if we add a DCT component to the study by design and finish the trial in three months, as opposed to eight months, now I've, in a sense, maybe wasted your time. Um, and so it's all about that, that balance. And I think DCTs where they're going to come in most handy is, again, like I mentioned previously, is is underserved areas where brick and mortars don't exist i don't think it's going to go away anytime fast anytime soon i like that answer okay rod i text you i know rod so i text you the link if you want to jump on okay and argue with robert but right? he's not gonna argue <laughs> robert's a cool guy leave him alone okay cra2 should be 120k my expectation is higher than that um dct okay so someone explaining what dct is um Bulgaria, so okay, landing a job in Bulgaria, very good. My team needs CRA, CRCs, remote preferred. Send me a DM. This is like every company in the industry needs. Everybody needs somebody. <laughs> um, it's like that song, Elizabeth. So let's yeah, talk Morale. about that. Uh, are you able to talk a little bit about hiring or like in a resource uh, constrained world or a skill skill set constrained world where people don't have the ideal skill sets? How are sites uh, hiring? Um, it's tough. Like what's your strategy? It's tough. I just hired someone, and I'm interviewing someone else Friday. At one point, I was I would have hired anyone. Morelli, I'm not kidding you. I would have hired anyone that walked through the door that responded to an ad, and nobody that. did. Nobody did. <laughs> nobody did. And then I got pickier because then I started getting more applicants like a few months later. I think interest rates going up, maybe starting to do something. I don't know. Yeah. But it's tough, man. I mean, I have the CRC Academy, so I put them in that right away. Um, but I, I understand it's like at least a three-month process. And it requires me to be in the office because the amount of studies I currently have as a startup realistically i could just be three days a week in the office and still fulfill my obligations to the sponsors 
But because I'm training new staff, it requires me, like, this is very rare for me to be home right now. It requires me to be present until I can outsource that aspect of, you know, what I do. So it's just a lot of time. Like, I think it's way more time than a lot of employers, like hiring managers, want to sign up for. I just think there's no other way around it. Like, it's just going to be a lot harder than you think. Yeah. And anyone else? Morali, you have you guys hiring? Latoya, are you hiring? Yeah. So, Not at the moment. We just brought someone on last week. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. Now you're training so, them. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm happy to show like our strategy here, you know, uh, what, you know, uh, what we decided we would do. Let me see if I can get like this. I'm sure like you guys are pros at it, but uh, I thought for the larger audience, um, um, you know, some stuff that I learned at Magi, um, it might have, I might have difficulty with the screen. It's slow. But the idea being that because clinical coordinator, like, so we're kind of thinking about the uh, role, like the HR system simply have like CR, research assistant, CRC1, CRC2, CRC3, right? So it's like a very simplified structure. But actually, when you deep dive into this, we're thinking, okay, there is a clinical role and there's a non-clinical role, right? So the clinical coordinator is people who can who do the clinical stuff. Uh, and so uh, some, something like a pre-screening, inclusion-exclusion criteria, con meds, uh, these things could be done, say, for example, by somebody with a medical background, like a foreign medical graduate, uh, there are a lot of them available trying to get into residency. They'll be good at that. Uh, study visits uh, would be either by a seasoned coordinator or somebody who's actually got a clinical background, like a nurse or a CMA. Uh, but then there's a whole bunch of stuff that's like non-clinical, right? Like, so we're looking at, let's say, uh, somebody might have a, a bachelor's in accounting or a, a associate's in accounting who could potentially come and do budgets, uh, who could uh, then do some regulatory work. Uh, and like, you know, be part of like source, the source documents could be created by foreign medical graduates or by uh, somebody with a general bachelor's degree. So we're kind of trying to identify different jobs that are like into the clinical and non-clinical bucket. Uh, and uh, we're looking at like trying to down delegate a lot of the jobs so that the clinical coordinators who are the ones who are harder to find just focus on the visits and maybe they, we can then increase that throughput uh, by outsourcing, even within the company, uh, other jobs. I mean, data entry is like a common one, uh, but we're trying to come up with more and more things that others can do as opposed to the coordinator and hire people in those buckets who are more like fresh graduates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, I mean, right now, and especially like at the smaller, smaller sites or smaller companies, we have more freedom and how we can handle that process, but some of the bigger yeah. institutions, I don't know how the academic medical centers do it other than forcing their residents to work uh, yeah. for free, uh, which I heard it happens a lot. And then yeah, there's a lot. try monitoring one of those sites. I've done it before. It's not fun. Uh, okay. Uh, any tips on how to overcome reluctance of sites to embrace new technologies? I don't. And I wouldn't want to be in that situation. If they're not going to do it, they're not going to do it. And I think the market yeah. will ultimately decide 
let the market decide, you know, you don't want the sites to be irrelevant. Like Robert was saying, like you got to adapt with the technologies, informed consent, you know, like he mentioned at the beginning. So it's tough. Um, I, think I think sites do have... need to take. Okay. Yeah, go ahead, Preeti. Yeah. No, it's okay. Um, no, I was just going to say most of the times we've I've seen like sites uh, think of it like one more system to think, you know, the login credentials for, or there's always issues <laughs> with technology, you know, it works until it doesn't. So if you want to go that route and technology is inevitable, like having somebody to hold hands <laughs> with the site to guide them and be there to, to troubleshoot um, would be a way to handle this because we can't deny technology. Yeah, that's yeah. too much work. I would probably, if, if I was a sponsor, I would bypass a site who didn't want to get with the technology or use the programs that's being used. Because right now there's so many, I don't want to say sites coming on, but there's a lot of PIs that's interested in doing research. And then they have someone like me who can help them navigate it. And we're all, all for all the new technology. And it's like, all right, come on, bring it. But Look then we have the other sites that's like, I don't want to do it. It's like, all right, well, we're here. Latoya, you nailed it. You you absolutely just nailed the the head on the. I mean, the, you you could not have said a better statement. I, I when I when I first connected with Dan and I sometimes send him screenshots. You know, as a sponsor, we get hundreds. When I told Dan this, he was like hundreds, and I'm like, yes, hundreds yeah. of of correspondences on a weekly basis asking to participate in our study. And by the way, for the larger audience, um. I'm not sure where the disconnect is. Recruiting on clinicaltrials.gov does not mean we're recruiting for sites. It means <laughs> we're recruiting for patients. So I, I'm not sure where like that disconnect came from, but um, I encourage everybody to kind of look at those definitions: suspended, you know, uh, uh, recruiting, you know, they're taking withdrawn. their shot. They're taking they, their shot. They're, they're taking their shot. So I can't blame them, but. Latoya, you're right. What I want to say is there's no shortage of sites, right? You nailed it absolutely in saying there's so many PIs that want to transition from clinical medicine to, you know, research and, and be a research physician solely. And you're right. As a sponsor, I don't want to deal with sites who don't want to embrace, you know, an app on their phone versus me sending this big bulky device for that a patient has to carry around and ends up losing then we have to reconcile the devices at the end of the study. And, you know, it's a lot easier to use an app, right? Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. There's no shortage of sites and those who are reluctant to adapt might get left behind. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. But um, what, what are the barriers you think sites or site personnel are reluctant to embrace technological changes? Is it that they're so busy that like they're not able to, then they get stressed with the new thing that's just coming on the uh, into them. I think it's busy. You know, Morali, I'll just say it like this. Like, let's just not even use anything new. Everybody on this call is familiar with Rave, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of how much experience you have with Rave, you have to sit through 35 minutes of useless trainings, right? Very, very, unless you're with the same CRO and same sponsor, you can have those waived. But I think it's the training and the, the, the bottleneck to get access to the systems. It's yeah. a big pain in everybody's side. And who has the time to sit there for 45 minutes and then take an assessment to make sure you understood the training you just took, 
that that's my simple answer from yeah. why it's, sites are it's, it's a number one reason why physicians don't want to be investigators exactly yeah it's it is it's the busyness i think is number one um we don't even have to talk high tech okay my sites use e-source but my pi one of my pis he's old school and he's like no my assessment's only 10 minutes i'm not gonna learn a new system just to do it i'm like okay we're gonna give you paper scales for your assessments well believe it or not this particular sponsor not robert sponsor uh this particular sponsor they didn't put the templates for the pi in the investigator site file so what we had to do is go in the protocol, search for these things, blow up the little images that the he's a dermatologist, so he's got to circle things like on a big face, stuff like that. And then the CRA says, we weren't supposed to do that because we're copying it from the <laughs> protocol. And I'm like, well, you guys didn't put it in the ISF. Where am I supposed to find this thing? You know, I, I and how much time do I need to spend looking for this thing when the patient's in the waiting room, like wondering what's going on? So... I think that is like, I don't know what you would define that as, but busyness, having too many things to do at once. Exactly. Yeah. That's my opinion. But yeah, just ranting. Okay. Uh, Jasmine Adams, Aspiring CRA. That's the podcast. Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Uh, if you have better opportunity with better pay and it's what you want, then leave. People leave jobs all the time. They'll fire you and won't bat an eye. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> you should be able to quit and not bat an eye. Mm -hmm. I agree. But look, as an employer, I've when get, I've only let people go like same day when they did something like really, really bad. It only happened like a few times. When I had to lay off, I try to give them like two weeks, four weeks sometimes, even longer if I can. Like, look, I'm going to help you find a job. So it's it's not always that way. You know, it just depends on the employer, but we're not all that way. Yeah. I think Latoya would agree. Morale yeah. would agree. <laughs> Robert would agree. Deep D would agree. Uh, okay. Uh, are clinical sites versed in safety data exchange agreements to be able to manage outsourced data entry? I would say short answer is no. <laughs> Resounding no. We don't even know where to get the paper scales from. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. Robert... Uh, okay, we're almost done with these questions. Thank you guys for staying so long and panelists for being on. This is really awesome. Here's one that made me laugh when I saw it. Do sites in the U.S. struggle with recruitment and retention as much as other countries? <laughs> so, yes. Okay, that's the biggest issue in all of research, not just the United States. Matter of fact, I don't know how other countries do. What's that, Latoya? I teach recruitment and retention for a clinical research fast track. That's my specialty. Okay. So what do you think? Like, this is the biggest issue in the entire industry. So I don't know what the issue is in other countries, but our studies, what we do is we make the patients feel more comfortable, like make sure the staff is knowledgeable of the study so that when the patients ask questions that we know what we're talking about, because especially on our end, with working with African-Americans, a lot of our people don't want to participate in trials because they don't want to be guinea pigs. But when they see someone that looks like me and I know what I'm talking about, they're more willing to participate in the trial. So being knowledgeable, having that open line of communication, like 
our subjects can text us at any time and someone's going to respond because we want them to be comfortable. So that's the number one thing, making our subjects feel comfortable. And we don't have a lot of patients who don't want to participate. You know, the retention has been really good. Once we get them in, we can keep them. And you know what we need to do, team? We need to work on on that guinea pig stigma, right? Because, I mean, it just it, – it's not – it may be prevalent in your community, LaToya, mm-hmm. Um but what, one thing I want to say here it, is that when I was a monitor and having a medical background, I always used to tell PIs, I'm like, listen, this isn't about being a guinea pig, right? Phase, there's nothing guinea piggish about a phase three study, right? Okay. Num- I mean, this isn't a phase one overnight. You're not, in a, you know, you're not their healthy volunteer and we're seeing PK on you. But what I'm trying to say is our industry is an alternative, viable treatment option that be, should be presented to every person, regardless of gender, color, creed, religion, doesn't make a difference. So I think it does a tremendous disservice. I was doing a neurology Parkinson study at the Mayo Clinic here in Scottsdale. And one of the leading neurologists, I won't obviously say his name, but you know, he would he would see a de novo patient who is just newly diagnosed, who's a perfect candidate for our study. And he's like, I forgot. I forgot, Robert. I'm sorry. I, I, I this was a great. I, I just forgot to. And that's a tremendous disservice, right? Instead, he diverted to standard of care that doesn't really work well, that has a limited shelf life. And so, I just think people like us who are in the industry, we need to remove the guinea pig stigma and move it more towards an alternative treatment option versus the guinea pig mantra. That's just another thing I wanted to add there, and that will help recruit. So, yeah, so- by the way. So this is really, really important. So I can tell you that working with pulmonary fibrosis, which is rare disease, up until 2014, we did not have treatments. Now there are two tablets that they call antifibrotics that do a really weak job. Uh, So the Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation, which is the patient support group, the American Thoracic Society. uh, So for the first time in their position statements, they've actually made a call that in, you know, we, we have updated guidelines on pulmonary fibrosis. For the first time, they've actually made a call saying, patients with this disease have to be offered clinical trials as part of the care plan by the physician. And I can tell you that working in a community health setting as a physician, I've had to face a lot of like, uh, you know, skepticism, uh, criticism, uh, because I would talk, talk research as a care option to patients. It's up to the patient to sign or not, and I present uh, the uncertainties of a trial and the value and what's the difference between a trial and the standard of care, and it's all documented. The consent is all IRB consent, but somehow, like physicians don't understand. It's it's weird. You go through residence, medical school, residency, and fellowship, and you get no training in clinical trials, and you get a lot of training in like bi- basic science research or you know outcomes research. And I was actually told during fellowship that clinical trials research is inferior and it's like it's being like, you know, you're in servitude to a a corrupt pharmaceutical industry. And uh, so I don't know how much of that culture is prevalent amongst physicians, but for sure there's a lack of like awareness that patients have a right to these trials. If your institution offers this and you have staff to do that, you got to be able to present that to the patient. Uh, and it's the same thing like infusion center. If you go to an institution, uh, they will do all the setup for the different services like dermatology, GI, rheumatology. 
But when you when you say, "Hey, my research patient who belongs to the same institution," you know, then they're like, "Oh, why should we do that for the research patient? You bring, you know, why would I want to put an IV for the research patient? They will still collect the bill, and then they'll be like, "Oh, this patient, you're, it's a research patient. The patient can wait." I'm like, no, this patient signed up for this service. This patient, as part of this institution, signed up for this treatment as their care plan. You, your appointment system is first come, first serve. So you don't discriminate between this patient and a GI patient or a rheumatology patient. And that concept, like, I don't know, I have, like, it's a, it's a hard sell. Like, and unless community health systems really understand that research can prevent reverse leakage, uh, can actually be a value add. Uh, it's really hard, but most community health systems are really like focusing on the Medicare dollars. Uh, that like you know, it's 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 this is what you get. Like even I'm just surprised even that's even at Mayo that like I forgot. Yep. It's no, either I well forgot said. or I don't I don't want to and I don't care. Yeah, I don't want to inconvenience well myself. <laughs> yeah, so I've been this? doing this. Yeah, I've I've been doing this for a while. Phase two and three primarily. Um, only a few phase ones and they weren't healthy volunteer the way that they, like differentiate like this guinea pig thing doesn't make any sense I, i've i've it's very uncommon for me to go through an informed consent form with a patient and them not wanting to do the study because they're afraid of the side effects it's usually they don't want to do the study because they don't want the placebo i actually had this robert yeah. for your study you yeah. know this patient came in they were a walkthrough and and we went through the ICF with them. They never end up signing. It was pre-screening. But they said, uh, oh, so I was told there's a medication here. I said, well, yes, but it's also you could get a placebo. They quit because of that. That's far more likely to happen than them quitting because they're afraid of, of the drug. Oh, great In point. my experiences. Great point. Okay. what uh, Would you hire someone who has a medical background and has just completed a clinical trial management course for a CTM position? Robert? Well, I mean, I got <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it's a, it's a big resounding no, right? Um, I love it. And, I love it. And, and, and I'm sorry to say that. And the reason yeah. for that is you can't manage a team without having the fundamental. It's like building a roof without the walls. Right. Mm -hmm. You can't you can't just put a roof on a house if you don't have walls. And I'll leave it that simply. So um, it's great that you completed the course. Um, it's certainly going to provide value to you in terms of knowledge. But um, crawl before you walk. Yeah, I agree. I think it's good you completed the course, but you can take positions just underneath it and then work your way into it. And I'll uh, say I started I, not to interrupt you. I started personally just in my own career journey. I started at the bottom of the totem pole as a project specialist, administrative. I wasn't even doing clinical work. So kind of leave your ego at the door. Um, and, and if it's really where you want to be, you know, just, just kind of acquire the knowledge and positions as you move through your career. D, shout out to D. Just want to say the awesome candid. Uh, thank you so much, D, and for your comments. And I see you helping other people out in the comments as well. Um, most pe this is a good one. Most people asking how to land a clinic or research job should ask themselves, what do I offer? In my case, it was me being an MD, three years experience in pharmaceuticals. So I agree. Always put yourself in the other person's shoes. I think it's helpful whether you're an employer, 
you put yourself in the employee shoes or vice versa. And it's just not natural for people to do that. I have been looking for opportunity in clinical research. Uh, it's been difficult to transition. Uh, you just got to do it. You have to do it. You got to network. Latinos in clinical research, black women in clinical research, uh, ACRP, SOCRA. If you're up in Canada, I know some Canadian. They're really big on the networking up there, almost out of necessity. Uh, Dartmouth will not allow any patient contact for their clinical coordinators. Dang, that's crazy. Mm. I can't imagine this, like, from my sites, the no patient contact. But I can understand for university, but it's just totally different worlds, you know, totally different worlds. This is why I think, like, guys and gals, small is better. Carla Vera Navas, you going to try to get on um, if you can. Veronica Wilson, well, actually, no, we're at the end. Thank you guys so much. Veronica, last one. I'm a senior CRA, and I'm all about educating subjects of color to participate in studies because my father participated in a prostate, prostate cancer trial. His younger brother, nephew's cousin, experienced longer lives by, by trusting trials. But I think that's a good way to end it. Mm-hmm. Anything else we forgot to uh, add? Thank you guys uh, for I being think we on this. Do, we should do a whole uh, channel on... Um... You know, uh, uh, diversity in clinical trials, recruitment of uh, minority patients. Uh, you know, I deal with, uh, you know, Pulmonics is a minority hub certified business by the state of North Carolina. But our main disease, one type of pulmonary fibrosis is predominantly a white male disease. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's all of a sudden now sponsors are coming and saying, hey, can you get minority patients? And like, so like it's a white male disease. So we have to have intentionality over how we recruit the minorities. Uh, you know, at Magi, there was a panel where uh, this uh, lady was in San Diego uh, and like right at the border. And so it was a different kind of minority issues that she was dealing with. So I think there's a lot of uh, fascinating uh, areas and like we could learn a lot, lot from Latoya. Uh, so uh, it would be really helpful. Like, to, and I think uh, the greater research community can also like learn a lot and we can hear questions and we can all learn from each other. Yeah. I agree. Um, yes. And Colette agrees to diversity and staff. So thank you everybody. We appreciate it. Anything else guys, as we wrap up, thank you for being troopers and staying almost two hours. I had no idea it would take this long, but thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Uh, take it easy guys. Bye-bye. Have right, a good bye. one, everybody. Great meeting, everybody. Likewise, thank you guys. Like, subscribe, comment, share. And uh, thank you, Latoya. Thank You're you, Morali. Yeah. And uh, we'll you, all Guru network. Nation. Yeah. Guru Nation is strong. Yeah. I haven't done live stream in a while, so it's, it feels good. you know. Yeah. Um, so thank you, guys. And everybody yeah. have a good rest of the day. And let's go network with each other on LinkedIn and in the comments here. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Bye.